Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St. Oswald's Haberfield Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. I've been reflecting this morning that it's an amazing thing that we, as modern people living 2,000 years later in Sydney, Australia, would come together to celebrate the life and the death and the resurrection of a Galilean carpenter. You just stop and think about that for a moment. And so whatever you think about Jesus, he has impacted the world arguably more than any other person in history. We're going to spend some time looking at what these resurrection accounts of Jesus teach us this morning. If you want to have a Bible open in Luke 24, you're welcome to do so. There are some of those black Bibles around you, or you can probably find it on a device. Look it up uh, if you need to. Otherwise, you can just listen along. Uh, Our friends, Gary and Beth, you'll see a picture of our family with theirs here on the slide, moved from the Bay Area in California to Nashville, Tennessee towards the end of last year. Here's our family with theirs when we visited the States last August. Uh, Gary, the black t-shirt, and I, we studied together at seminary, Gordon Conwell. And they moved from the church that he was serving because he was asked to go and pastor a church in the Nashville area, and they sensed that God's hand was in it. A little under two weeks ago, Ali got a text from Beth letting us know that the school shooting that had happened in Nashville the one you probably heard about, was right in their neighbourhood. And while their kids don't attend that school and they all came home safe that day, several families at their church do have kids in that school. I messaged Gary an hour or two later and I asked whether it had impacted anyone he knew. He wrote back, I just found out a few moments ago that one of the three kids killed is a family from our church. As you can imagine, it's been devastating for their community and a difficult and surreal task for him only five or six months into the job to lead the family and the church through their grief and their confusion. And so I asked Gary what he's planning to preach this Easter. And he said, Jesus and hope. A hope that can face anything, even death. Death lies behind all of our biggest problems in the world. It's too often the tragic outcome of violence and hate or recklessness. But even outside these obviously destructive and evil cases, death is a great problem. We invest billions and billions of dollars into state-of-the-art medical research, especially into finding more effective treatments and cures for things like cancer. Why? To keep death at bay. We worry about climate change because the prospect of global death, not just of species extinction, but especially of the world's poor, is at stake. 
This time three years ago, we locked down nations and the global economy to slow the spread of a virus that caused spiraling death rates and widespread sickness. And sickness, by the way, is a close cousin of death. Death is the great problem because death is the inevitable outcome. In this world, life always ends in death. Uh, That's a societal problem, a, a widespread problem, but it's also a personal problem. Leo Tolstoy, the 19th century Russian novelist, he wrote about the existential issue of death in a short uh, essay called A Confession. He said this, my question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man, every person, a question without, which, without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy. How do we make sense of death? How do we stand up to death? Over it. Over this Easter season, we've been looking at how the story of Easter answers life's biggest questions. On Good Friday, just a couple of days ago, we saw that the answer to the question, what's gone wrong, is Sin. Sin has gone wrong. Sin affects us as people. It affects our relationship with God. It affects our relationship with others. It's why our world is so broken and messed up. And what Jesus has come to show us is that the reason there is death is because there's sin. And so today we ask the question, how can we fix it? And the answer is a bit of a spoiler, and I'll give it to you at the beginning. Because the Easter story says we can't fix death. But God can and He has. And so we turn to Luke chapter 24 and the scenes that we've heard read from Luke's gospel this morning, they're completely startling, especially if you take seriously the events of the last few days. Jesus was dead, crucified, His body broken and disfigured. And now He's alive again. And there's kind of a humbling authenticity about the accounts, I think, as you read them. In the first scene of the women who go to the tomb on the first day of the week, the Sunday after Passover, they see two men in dazzling clothes, but they don't find Jesus' body. And then they go and tell the apostles with some other disciples what they had seen and heard. And Luke says that the apostles, the ones who would be the bedrock on which the early church was built and grew, they didn't believe them. They thought it was an idle tale. In ancient Jewish society, the testimony of a woman was inadmissible in a legal situation. And so women's testimonies were doubted much more than that of men. And if you're a first century Jewish person who wanted to fabricate the convincing case that someone had actually risen from the dead, you don't write women in as the first witnesses. And one of those women, just to kind of 
make the, the point even more strongly is a woman named Mary Magdalene. She's actually listed first among the women. She was a woman who had had seven demons cast out of her. You can imagine like the, 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 the conversation, can't you? So tell me again what happened to this Jesus of Nazareth? Well, he rose from the dead. And you say, who saw it? A woman who once had seven demons. Yeah. It doesn't sound like the kind of star witness that you would want for this kind of a case. But then on top of this, in the second scene that we read, and we had read to us, the disciples, they see Jesus and they think that he's a ghost. And he shows them his hands and his feet... And Luke says in verse 41, they were still disbelieving in their joy. They wanted it to be true, but they weren't sure. And so Jesus gives them another proof. It's just that, I don't know if you thought about it, it's sort of a bit of an underwhelming proof. He's like, do you have anything to eat? And they get him some grilled fish and he eats it in their presence. And that's when they decide, yep, it's him. We didn't know before, we weren't sure, but now that he's snacking on the sardines, we know he's been resurrected. Like That's the story. This is what happens. And all of this gives you the strong sense that Luke, the gospel writer, has recorded things the way they really happened. The resurrection of Jesus, it's a, it's a claim about history, that something really happened on the third day, that if you had had a camera and you were there at the right place and the right time, you could have captured it. That it isn't just a metaphor or a symbol of of an opportunity for a fresh start, or hope after darkness, or a reassurance that everything works out in the end. Tish Harrison Warren is an author and an Anglican minister, and uh, she's a New York Times columnist, and she writes this, she said, That morning in history when Jesus rose, there was no expectation of a resurrection. There was no fanfare, no churches gathering with songs of triumph, no bells ringing, nothing. A few women went out to tend to Jesus' dead body. His nobody disciples were laying low, lost in grief and feeling afraid. The rest of Jerusalem and the wider world had moved on. The sun rose, people went about their business gathering grain and water from wells. They started breakfast. All of the cosmos was changed and it was almost entirely overlooked. Almost entirely overlooked and yet something happened and everything was changed. You see this in the way that Jesus is described in the events of that day. It's as if he's pranking his disciples a few times. He's, he, he's not in the tomb when they come to tend to him. He mysteriously appears beside two disciples on the road to Emmaus, a passage in between those two that we didn't read but he appears to them in a way where they don't recognize that it's him. And then later, when he's eating a meal with them, he breaks some bread and they realize that it's their Lord and then suddenly he vanishes from their sight. And then he turns up in a room with his apostles, entirely unexpected. And if we take John's account of the resurrection narrative interview as well, the doors of the room were locked 
But Jesus just appears and he says to them, peace be with you. Something's different about Jesus. That's why they think he's a ghost. And so he eats and he shows them his wounds and he says to them, it is I, myself. And and the point is that Jesus is still human, still physical and material and very much connected to the world. He still walks on two feet rather than hovering six inches above the ground. And at the same time, he's different. He's somehow beyond beyond the limits of our own physical bodies. His resurrection body transcends our limitations. Locked doors and walls seem to be no object for him. Space and time are somewhat malleable in his presence. Jesus' humanity is a transformed physicality. Or what the Apostle Paul, writing to one of the early churches in Corinth, calls a spiritual body. He's not just a spirit, not just a body, but something glorious, transformed, untouchable by death. When we talk about the resurrection, it can be easy to say that what Jesus did was that he came back to life. Which is true insofar as that life is the opposite of death. Jesus didn't stay dead. The reason there is death is because there's sin, but Jesus has paid for our sin and he's completely innocent of sin himself. And so he's unable to stay dead and he triumphs over it. But the way he triumphs over it isn't by coming back to life as it was before. He doesn't come back to life as a person does who is resuscitated on Bondi Beach, he's well dead. Three days in a stone-cold tomb. And rather than coming back from the dead, like a rewind of the tape, Jesus was swallowed by death. And then he blew a hole out the back of it and emerges into glorious, new, death victorious, glorious, over death victorious, glorious new life. That's what resurrection is, life that is no longer held under the curse of death, life that cannot be touched by death. And so C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Narnia, Narnia stories, the Chronicles, he sums it up when he writes, Jesus has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. And here's where it all gets interesting for us. Jesus couldn't be held down by death because he was innocent. Death had no claim on him. And now in Jesus, death also has no claim on those who by faith rest in him. Just as the uh, creditor's power over, uh, over somebody is broken when a debt is paid, so death's claim and power over us was broken when Jesus died in our place, paying our penalty. 
American pastor in the early 20th century, a man named Donald Gray Barnhouse, lost his wife at an early age through sickness unexpectedly. He had small children, and as he drove his children to his wife's funeral, he stopped in traffic. Ahead of them was a huge truck, and the sun was at an angle that it cast a truck's shadow across the snow-covered field beside it. And Barnhouse pointed to the shadow and he spoke to the children. He said, look at the shadow of the truck on the field, children. If you had to be run over, would you rather be run over by the truck or by its shadow? And the youngest child responded first. He said, the shadow, it couldn't hurt anybody. Dr. Barnhouse said, that's right. And remember, children, Jesus let the truck of death strike him so that it could never destroy us. Mother lives with Jesus now. Only the shadow of death has passed over her. And this is what it means for all those who have put their hope in Jesus and in his resurrection, we can have a hope that can face anything, even death. In his 1973 book, uh, The Denial of Death, Ernest Becker, he argued that all human behavior was motivated by a fear, a profound fear of death. Many of us have coping strategies, we try and ignore death or we push it out of the picture and One recent way of trying to account for death is to argue that death is, after all, just not that bad. It's a natural part of life, and since you can only either be alive or dead, death is nothing to be frightened of, because when you are dead, you won't be living to notice it. Or to take a movie that we've rediscovered now that we've got children, the lions eat the antelope, eventually they die and they fertilize the grass and the antelopes eat the grass and so we're all connected in the great circle of life. There's just a kind of progression and an order and a naturalness about death. It's nothing to be afraid of. It's not the enemy of life. But Christianity says no, no. Death is not the way things are supposed to be. And the reason we fear death and try and hide from death in our lives is because we weren't made to die. We were made to live. One of the things about Christian hope is that it's personal. It believes that we will be raised as persons in transformed but real bodies, just as Christ was raised in a transformed and real body. He speaks with his friends. He pursues them. Did you notice the, I mean, we didn't read the, the bit of the story, but the Emmaus Road part of the story is two of the disciples who have left Jerusalem to walk back to Emmaus. Perhaps in the disappointment and the disbelief that all of this had happened and wondering whether it had all been just a complete waste of time. And who shows up? Jesus walking beside them to meet them in their grief and to comfort them in their doubts and to reveal that he is alive. Thomas, 
the great doubting Thomas, the poor guy was the only disciple who didn't get to meet Jesus alive. He gets a bad rap, but the other 10 of them were there in the room and he's like, well, come on, I'm not going to believe if I wasn't there. But Jesus meets him again and says, Thomas, put your finger in my side. Touch me and see that these wounds are real and that I'm alive. And all this matters because one of the most precious things that death takes from us, that it threatens for us, is love. We grieve at funerals and we hate the thought that one day we might not be around because we want love to last forever. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, the resurrection life which God promises to those who trust Him will be person. We will be persons and persons are capable of love and so heaven will be a world of love, a perfect world that will make even our best and most intense experiences of love in this life feel like a trickle from a tap compared to a great waterfall. Because there'll be no selfishness, no envy, no pride, no sin which gets in the way of love. And because we'll be in the presence of God, who is the source of love, seeing and experiencing His face, His love, sorry, face to face, you will be transformed. At one time I was a school teacher, and occasionally I still bump into students that I taught about 15 years ago. Actually, it happens surprisingly frequently around Christchurch in the West. And uh, there have been some moments where someone has walked up to me and they've said, it's me. And at first I've had no idea who it is, but then they tell me their name and I begin to see that this person that I taught who was just a boy in his early teens at the time, is now all grown up. And in the best moments, talking to them as an adult is a moment of seeing them having fulfilled so much potential that was there as a teenager, just waiting to bloom and be tapped. And in the new creation, in the resurrection life, it will be like that. We're going to think of each other, I always knew you could be like this. In your best times, I saw flashes of it, and now look at you, perfected, glorified. And so we have hope, hope that love lasts, and hope that the, the people that we want to be, the, the best parts about ourselves, the things that we know in Christ that we should be, they will happen. And more than this, Christian hope, the hope that the resurrection gives us, it's concrete. That's why Christianity has been called a fighting religion. Because it doesn't look out into the world and see people suffering from poverty and injustice and pain and, and, and think it doesn't matter, we're just passing through it. This world is temporary, just... Just forget about this world and look towards the future. No, Jesus has been raised from the dead physically in a body and that means that this world matters, the physical creation matters. It's one of the reasons that at Christchurch in the West and here at St. Oswald's we partner with organizations like International Justice Mission and Compassion who are working to eradicate modern day slavery and to bring hope to children from some of the poorest families in the world. Should we be busy ending slavery and lifting communities out of poverty? 
Yes. Yes, this is a worthy work. This world is not an illusion or something that is to be escaped for more spiritual reality. God is committed to his world and he's committed to putting it right. And so just like Jesus, Christians get their hands dirty and get involved in the world, in alleviating the suffering and the injustice. Well, sort of giving you a couple of what these, uh, the, the, the significance or the implications are of the resurrection. I'll share just one more with you. If Jesus has been raised and if our hope is in him, we can have peace in this world. So many people live quietly desperate lives, afraid that they're going to miss out on things, miss out on an experience, on a family on great travel, on buying a house, on a relationship. And the fear of death causes us to be restless, trying to pack in all of the experiences that you can have. You want to see the sights, travel the world, eat great food and good wine. And it's because this sense of what what we experience in the here and now, what we can get before we die is all that we'll ever experience. But when Jesus meets his disciples in that room, he says to them, peace be with you. And the point, I think, is that because Jesus was resurrected, you don't need to worry that you will miss out on something. You don't only live once, not if you throw yourself in with Jesus. For those who belong to him, his resurrection is their future, not nothingness, nor some kind of floaty, cloud-filled heaven, but a fully physical, redeemed, and transformed Resurrection reality. When God makes the world, He remakes the world as He's remade Jesus, you'll stand on solid ground with all your body and spiritual senses and you'll be ready to enjoy the best of everything for all eternity. And what that means is that you can chill out a little bit now. You can rest because God's promise the promise that is stitched into Jesus' resurrection is that this life of experience isn't all there is if you hope in Him. Well, how can we fix it? We can't fix death, but God can. And in Jesus' resurrection, he has blown a hole out the back of death into glorious new resurrection life, the life that he promises to give to all who rest their hopes and their lives in him. And so this Easter, as every Easter, the challenge is to consider what you make of this resurrected Jesus, whether you'll trust him, worship him, Obey Him, delight and rejoice in Him. And whether you'll look for His continued work in your life, because if He's alive, then He is not finished with you. I discovered this quote about Easter by Philip Yancey uh, just recently, and um, I've been reflecting on it a little bit, and I just really love it, so I'm going to share it with you just as a way of concluding. Philip Yancey, a Christian writer, Um, 
He writes this, he says, In many respects, I find an unresurrected Jesus easier to accept. Easter makes him dangerous. Because of Easter, I have to listen to his extravagant claims and can no longer pick and choose from his sayings. Moreover, Easter means he must be loose and out there somewhere. Out there somewhere, still working, still reigning, still alive, still bringing new life to those who will put their trust in him and still promising that those who have found their hope in him will share his life forever. Hallelujah. 